I had a I had a pretty badass like mad monk thing going on when I was a teenager. Um, and a shaven head that was pretty good. Uh, I yeah I've 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 not I'm not one I'm not one for costumes. I I did um I did have a couple of years um a kind of mad scientist thing going on when I had red dreads and like uh, it Wait, was early two thousands. Yeah, it was the early two thousands. Forgive me. Mad. Um, Come on. I know, I know. I've learnt the error of my ways. Um, but yeah, had a sort of mad manic face paint thing going on. That was quite good fun with a, you know, with a um, uh, a stolen lab coat. Yeah. Uh, last year we we did we did um, trick or treating last year for the first time. Um, we put some pumpkins out. Local kids coming round, and um, uh, number one, I thought that. Basically, like no one was going to come, so I gave like far too many sweets to the kids that came round early, and then like I had to go to the shops on a Sunday night to try and stock up, because um, like well, it's it's an organised business now, Halloween, right? Like word gets around on the WhatsApp groups, and you get carloads of kids like turning up, um, and then near the end of the night, like when the teenagers start showing up, right? And this kid showed up in a like just wearing a tracksuit, basically. And Layla really sarcastically went, "Well, what have you? What are you supposed to be, mate?" He went, "Oh, it's the Squid Game, actually." And she was like, oh. <laughs> "Oh, okay, fair." Oh shit, shit, Phil, Phil, really- how about you? Uh, I like, I don't know, I, I'm not really one for like elaborate costumes. Like, I think myself and Sinead have been planning costumes for the past like six months, and now that it's five days away, we're kind of like. Okay, what are we gonna wear? Like we have talked about going as Gomez and Morticia Adams, going as Elvis and Priscilla Presley. Um, oh, the couple's costume, I like it. Yeah, like I don't know, like I've I have always just gone very low effort because, like for me, the past few years, like I ha- apart from like maybe last year, I never really went out for Halloween, like. Well, I've, yeah, on that note, actually, I have just remembered the best ever Halloween costume that I ever did, talking about couples costumes. Me and my housemates, when I was at uni, dress, all dressed up as Kiss. So um, so I was I was Ace Freely. My best friend at uni, Tim, was uh, Gene Simmons. Our friend, uh, Moose, who's a, who's a girl, was um, Peter Chris uh, in The Cat. And um, uh, who have I forgotten? The other one um, was our friend Josh. Uh, that's really bad, isn't it? And yeah, and we we had little like toy. It was really good actually. We had toy like toy shop guitars that we'd bought, and uh, we'd like gaffer taped um, party poppers to them. And when we went to the club at the end of the night, we got them to play uh, Crazy Nights, and then we all did a simul- simultaneous party popper pull. That was that was pretty good. We made like um. You know, crazy knee pads out of like cardboard boxes and wrapped in gaffer tape. It was great. Sounds really fun. Like I, I suppose Halloween. Once you get over, it's kind of you have those in between years when you're maybe like too old to go trick or treating, but like too young to go out and get drunk. And you kind of oh, Halloween's a bit never crappy, too young to go out and get drunk. Well, legally, legally <laughs> speaking, um. Yeah, like, but see, it was funny, like, where I grew up, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so the only people that would ever come trick-or-treating are, like, my cousins, who, like, live nearby. Oh, wow, like, it's yeah. Not, 
it wasn't a place where you could walk, so you had to drive to each other's houses, and it was never really like that big of a thing. Um, and yeah, like no, I I think it's just more of a fun night out now um, than anything. But actually, what was your what was your favorite suite? Like what what what? It, say transport Matt back to being. 12 years old you've gotten everything you could have wanted what is the number one thing that you're looking for yeah we never so we never really did trick-or-treating like it hadn't quite taken off in the uk trick-or-treating when i was a kid but we did have like halloween parties and i used to really enjoy like bobbing for apples you know like we used to do like like combined uh bonfire night and and halloween night parties and yeah i always used to enjoy bobbing for apples because i was really kind of Preeny and showy off about it, like sticking my head in the freaking bucket and getting it. And uh, yeah, well, don't want a toffee apple. Don't see a toffee apple these days, do you? Health hazard. Political correctness your gone. Teeth done political too correctness expensive. gone mad. Yeah, fucking tell As me. Someone who it. has to pay for some dental work coming soon. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't risk it. I wouldn't risk it at all. At home, see, because um, Halloween is based in Celtic tradition. Um, like we would have played up at my cousin's house, like a lot of. Uh, more traditional games like we have stuff like Baron Brack, which is a traditional Halloween loaf of bread that has a, a ring in it so you cut it and you know whoever gets the ring you know it's meant to be good luck but we would also have this game now I don't know if other people played this but it was just like played every year in my family where you'd get like this mountain of flour and there'd be like a grape on top of it and you had to like cut the flour and separate it until someone made the grape fall over. Um, yeah, and then yeah, your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your face yeah. gets dunked in the flower. Ah, oh. I mean, I, I guess, yeah, I guess like Catholic countries, you know, whether we're talking uh, Mexico or Ireland or, you know, country, or Italy, like countries with a good, well, yeah, that really lean into All Souls Day, I guess, is a good place to, to do Halloween, right? And now, and now I live in permanent Halloween, the terror that is living in the UK. If you haven't guessed it uh, already, you're listening to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I am one of your hosts, Thomas Omani, and I am joined by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. And we're doing a Halloween special this week. <laughs> my best Vincent Price. I watched um, last, last Halloween, actually. I, I had a lovely time. I watched House on the Hill. Uh, the Vincent Price uh, film, and I had a lovely, lovely time. Um, uh, you know, so uh, so I, I don't know what I'll watch this year, but I'm not a big horror movie fan. Um, I don't like kind of uh, like torture porny stuff. I do like um, I do like um, uh, you know those kind of those kind of movies that are were like the real eighties like splatter horror stuff that are obviously absurd and not yeah. not actually grotesque in any real way. You know they were at the time I know, but like time has given them the the veneer mm-hmm. of of mm-hmm. Uh, of safety. I I really I, I again last Halloween I watched um uh, the the annoyingly sanitized Amazon Prime versions, which I guess must be TV cuts of both Reanimator. Uh, and my buddy Valentine, uh, and had a lovely, lovely time watching those. I uh, last night I watched The Crow. Um, it was Sinead's first time ever seeing The Crow. Uh, what 
I'll let me go say, what was your first react? What was your first reaction to it? I'm asking my girlfriend. Yeah. Do you not remember what it was? Sinead's first reaction in the first five minutes is, this is fucking shit. <laughs> R.I.P. Brandon Lee. R.I.P. Brandon He died for nothing, Sinead. He died for nothing. Yeah, Ma- Matt said he died, he died for nothing. Eric D. Raven, you know, <laughs> bit on the nose. Um, but yeah, like, I, I kind of... Um, I like kind of the psychological horror, not kind of the modern like A24 stuff, but like stuff that like really gets under your skin, like a like a Event Horizon, um, like the early kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff, like the real like unsettling stuff, not because it's like gory, but it's just so unsettling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I had a, a, a brief like Japanese, I've had to, setting up for today, I had a brief Japanese horror phase it, when when that was all the rage uh you know with um audition in particular being a good classic of that kind of psychological horror tradition uh yeah like i so i'm not i'm not uh, i'm not and, and layla layla really isn't into her scary movies at all but um yeah i can re- really recommend house on the hill the original like vincent price one from the 50s is absolutely stunning and a work of art and like reanimator and my bloody valentine um, although splatter uh, and you know, sort of very much of their time of the eighties, I can really recommend. If you're looking for something to watch on Halloween that isn't, you know, that isn't uh, like Saw or or something really, really, you know, torture porny. Yeah, like the two thousands were such a grim time for horror movie, and now like it's funny. I'm feeling like extremely fatigued of the A twenty four. This is a movie about trauma. This is a movie about familial interpersonal relationship trauma in the veil of a horror movie. I want to see some spooky ghouls. I want to see some guys. I want to see some big guys. Some big guys. Well, so so what I want to do for you today, Thomas, I've got some 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 short stories to read for you. Uh, well, I'm going to read two of them because they are uh, sufficiently old that I can read them out in full without breaching anyone's copyright. Um and then there's uh, one fiction story which is a bit more recent, and therefore I'm going to have to summarise it rather than quote quote it at length. And then the last tale, which is actually a tale writ- uh, from a book written by a tattoo artist, purports at least to be true. So we'll leave with the most unsettling version. Um, before we get to that, I want to see if we can continue our conversation from uh, last week's Im- Ink Master episode when we talked about whether the Invisible, Ma- Invisible Man had tattoos. And ask you whether you think ghosts have tattoos. Um, it depends on what you define ghosts as. If they are the spectral representation of a person's previous physical being, then I believe they would have tattoos. Um, but yeah, I think I th- I I think ghosts have tattoos. Can ghosts get tattoos? Is a different question. <laughs> That would make that be a really different scene in, in that mo- in that Patrick Swayze Swayze movie, right? Yeah, exactly. We should remake that. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. Are you ready for the first story? Uh, yeah. Before uh, you start, if any of the listeners are good with Photoshop, if you want to Photoshop myself and Matt as the pottery <laughs> scene in Ghost, uh, work away and tag at Beneath Skin Pod on Twitter. Well, this this first this first story is um is pretty pretty sexy. Uh, it's got a kind of sexy side to it. 
Um, so maybe maybe this is a good place to start. Um, it's by a Japanese writer called uh, Junichiro Tanizaki, kind of founder of like modern Japanese literature, basically one of the real like pillars of 20th century Japanese writing. Um, it is a story that is called uh, in English, basically the tattoo. It was made or, or part of it inspired that film um, that came out called Irizumi. Um, but this is the story. It was it's 100, 110, 112 years old. Came out in um, came out in nineteen ten. So at a particular time, as we've alluded to a few times on the podcast, um, came out at a particular time for the history of tattooing in Japan, where. Uh, really, tattooing is is pretty underground uh, in Japan at this time. Um, certainly, uh, kind of frowned upon, and so you know that historical context is gonna is gonna give us the the context uh, here. Um, this is also probably worth worth, worth saying that the, the story is one which sort of founded his fame. Really, it's kind of early in his career. Um, he was born in uh, eighteen eighty six. So he wasn't that old uh, when he when he wrote this uh, wrote this piece. So okay, I will read it out and I'll read it out in full. Um, feel free, Thomas, with your production magic, to add some spooky, spooky sound effects. Co- copyright free spooky music. Copyright free spooky music. Okay, I'll try and do this justice. It was an age when men honoured the noble virtue of frivolity when life was not such a harsh struggle as it is today. It was a leisurely age, an age when professional wits could make an excellent livelihood by keeping rich or well-born young gentlemen in a cloudless good humour and seeing to it that the laughter of court ladies and geisha was never stilled. In the illustrated romantic novels of the day, the Kabuki Theatre, where rough masculine heroes like Sadakuro and Jiria were transformed into women, Everywhere beauty and strength were won. People did all they could to beautify themselves, some even having pigments injected into their precious skins. Gaudy patterns of line and colour danced over men's bodies. Visitors to the pleasure quarters of Edo preferred to hire palanquin bearers who were splendidly tattooed. Courtesans of the Yoshiwara and the Tatsumi quarter fell in love with tattooed men. Among those so adorned were not only gamblers, firemen, and the like, but members of the merchant class and even samurai. Not just for gamblers and firemen, Tom. Um, Exhibitions were held from time to time, and the participants stripped to show off their filigreed bodies, would pat themselves proudly, boast of their own novel designs, and criticise each other's merits. There was an exceptionally skillful young tattooer named Seikichi. He was praised on all sides as the master of Charibun or Yatsue, and the skins of dozens of men had been offered as the silk for his brush. Much of the work admired as the tattoo exhibitions was his. Others might be noted for their shading or their use of cinnabar. Pay attention, Army James. <laughs> um, but Seikichi was famous for the unrivaled boldness and sensual charm of his art. Seikichi had formally earned his living as an ukiyo-e painter of the school of Tokuyuni and Kunisada, a background which, in spite of his decline to the status of tattooer, was evident from his artistic conscience and sensitivity. 
No one whose skin or whose fatigue failed to interest him could buy his services. The clients he did accept had to leave the design and cost entirely to his discretion, and to endure for one or even two months the excruciating pain of his needles. Deep in his heart, the young tattooer concealed a secret pleasure and a secret desire. His pleasure lay in the agony men felt as he drove his needles into them, torturing their swollen, blood-red flesh. And the louder they groaned, the keener was Seikichi's strange delight. Shading and vermilioning, these are said to be especially painful, were the techniques he most enjoyed. When a man had been pricked five or six hundred times in the course of an average day's treatment and then had soaked himself in a hot bath to bring out the colours, he would collapse at Seikichi's feet, half dead. But Seikichi would look down at him coolly. I dare say that hurts, he would remark with an air of satisfaction. Whenever a spineless man howled in torment or clenched his teeth and twisted his mouth as if he were dying, Seikichi told him, Don't act like a child. Pull yourself together. You've hardly begun to feel my needles. And he'd go on tattooing, as unperturbed as ever, with an occasional sidelong glance at the man's tearful face. But sometimes, a man of immense fortitude set his jaw and bore up stoically, not even allowing himself to frown. Then Seikichi would smile and say, Ah, you're a stubborn one. But wait, soon your body will begin to throb with pain. I doubt you'll be able to stand it. For a long time, Seikichi cherished the desire to create a masterpiece on the skin of a beautiful woman. Such a woman had to meet various qualifications of character as well as appearance. A lovely face and a fine body were not enough to satisfy him. Though he inspected all the reigning beauties of the Edo Gay Quarters, he found none who met his exacting demands. Several years had passed without success and yet his face and figure of the perfect woman continued to obsess his thoughts. He refused to abandon hope. One summer evening, during the fourth year of his search, Seikichi happened to be passing the Hirosei restaurant in the Fukugawa district of Edo, not far from his own house, when he noticed a woman's bare milk-white foot peeping out beneath the curtains of a departing palanquin. To his sharp eye, a human foot was as expressive as a face. This was one of sheer perfection. Exquisitely chiselled toes, Nails like the iridescent shells along the shore at Enoshima, a pearl-like rounded heel. Skin so lustrous it seemed bathed in the limpid waters of a mountain spring. This, indeed, was a foot to be nourished by men's blood, a foot to trample on their bodies. Surely this was the foot of the unique woman who so long eluded him. Eager to catch a glimpse of her face, Seikichi began to follow the palanquin. But after pursuing it down several lanes and alleys, he looked sight of it altogether. Seikichi's long-held desire turned into a passionate love. One morning, late in the next spring, he was standing on the bamboo-floored veranda of his home in Fukugawa, gazing at a pot of Omoto lilies when he heard someone in the garden gate. Around the corner of the inner fence appeared a young girl. She'd come on an errand for a friend of his, a geisha of the nearby Tatsumi Quarter. 
My mistress asked me to deliver this cloak and she wondered if you'd be so good as to decorate its lining, the girl said. She untied a saffron-collared parcel and took out a woman's silk cloak, wrapped in a sheet of thick paper, bearing a portrait of an actor and a letter. The letter repeated his friend's request and went on to say its bearer would soon begin a career as a geisha under her protection. She hoped that, while not forgetting old ties, he would extend his patronage to this girl. I thought I'd seen you before, said Seikichi, scrutinising her intently. She seemed only 15 or 16, but her face had a strangely ripe beauty, a look of experience as if she'd already spent years in the gay quarter and had fascinated innumerable men. Her beauty mirrored the dreams of the generations of glamorous men and women who died and lived in this vast capital, where the nation's sins and wealth were concentrated. Seikichi had her sit on the veranda and he studied her delicate feet, which were bare except for elegant straw sandals. You left the Hirosei by palanquin one night last July, did you not? He inquired. I suppose so, she replied, smiling at the odd question. My father was still alive then, and he often took me there. I've waited five years for you. This is the first time I've seen your face, but I remember your foot. Come in for a moment. I have something to show you. She'd risen to leave, but he took her by the hand and led her upstairs to his studio overlooking the broad river. And then he brought out two picture scrolls and unrolled one of them before her. It was a painting of a Chinese princess, a favourite of the cruel Emperor Chu of the Shang dynasty. She was leaning on a balustrade in a languorous pose, the long skirt of her figured brocade robe trailing halfway down a flight of stairs, her slender body barely able to support the weight of her gold crown, studded with coral and lapis lazuli. In her right hand, she held a large wine cup, tilting it to her lips as she gazed down at a man who was about to be tortured in the garden below. He was chained hand and foot to a hollow copper pillar in which a fire would be lighted. Both the princess and her victim, his head bowed before her, his eyes closed, ready to meet his fate, portrayed with terrifying vividness. As the girl stared at this bizarre picture, her lips trembled and her eyes began to sparkle. Gradually, her face took on a curious resemblance to that of the, that of the princess. In the picture, she discovered her secret self. Your own feelings are revealed here, Seikichi told her with pleasure as he watched her face. Why are you showing me this horrible thing? The girl asked, looking up at him. She turned pale. The woman is yourself. Her blood flows in your veins. Then he spread out the other scroll. This was a painting called The Victims. In the middle of it, a young woman stood leaning against the trunk of a cherry tree. She was gloating over a heap of men's corpses lying at her feet. Little birds fluttered about her, singing in triumph. Her eyes radiated pride and joy. Was it a battlefield or a garden in spring? In this picture, the girl felt she'd found something long hidden in the darkness of her own heart. This painting shows your future, Seikichi said, pointing to the woman under the cherry tree, the very image of the young girl. All these men will ruin their lives for you. Please, I beg of you, put it away. 
She turned her back as if to escape its tantalising lure and prostrated herself before him, trembling. At last she spoke again. Yes, I admit you're right about me. I am like that woman. So please, take it away. Don't talk like a coward, Seikichi told her with his malicious smile. Look at it more closely. You won't be squeamish long. The girl refused to lift her head, still prostrate, her face buried in her sleeves. She repeated over and over again she was afraid and wanted to leave. No, you must stay. I will make you a real beauty, he said, moving closer to her. Under his kimono was a vial of anaesthetic, which he'd obtained some time ago from a Dutch physician. The morning sun glittered on the river, setting the eight-mat studio ablaze with light. Rays reflected from the water, sketched rippling golden waves on the paper sliding screens and on the face of the girl, who was fast asleep. Seikichi closed the doors and taken up his tattooing instruments, but for a while he only sat there, entranced, savouring to the full her uncanny beauty. He thought he would never tire of contemplating her serene, mask-like face. Just as the ancient Egyptians had embellished their magnificent land with pyramids and sphinxes, he was about to embellish the pure skin of this girl. Presently, he raised the brush, which was gripped between the thumb and last two fingers of his left hand, applied its tip to the girl's back and, with a needle he held in his right hand, began pricking out a design. He felt the spirit dissolve into the charcoal black ink that stained her skin. Each drop of Ryuku cinnabar that he mixed with alcohol and thrust in was a drop of his lifeblood. He saw in his pigments the hues of his own passions. Soon it was afternoon and then the tranquil spring day drew towards its close. But Seikichi never paused in his work nor was the girl's sleep broken. When a servant came from the geisha house to inquire about her, Seikichi turned him away, saying he'd left long ago. And hours later, when the moon hung over the mansion across the river, bathing the houses along the bank in a dreamlike radiance, the tattoo was not yet half done. Seikichi worked on by candlelight. Even to insert a single drop of colour was no easy task. Every thrust of his needle... Seikichi gave a heavy sigh and felt as if he'd stabbed his own heart. Little by little, the tattoo marks began to take on the form of a huge black widow spider, and by the time the night sky was paling into the dawn, this weird, malevolent creature had stretched its eight legs to embrace the whole of the girl's back. In the full light of the spring dawn, boats were being rowed up and down the river, the oars creaking in the morning quiet. Roof tiles glistened in the sun, and the haste began to thin out over white sails swelling in the early breeze. Finally, Seikichi put down his brush and looked at the tattooed spider. The work of art had been the supreme effort of his life. Now he'd finished it, his heart was drained of emotion. The two figures remained still for some time. Then, Seikichi's low, hoarse voice echoed quaveringly from the walls of the room. To make you truly beautiful, I've poured my soul into this tattoo. 
Today there is no woman in Japan to compare with you. Your old fears are gone. All men will be your victims. As if in response to these words, a faint moan came from the girl's lips. Slowly she began to recover her senses. With each shuddering breath, the spider's legs stirred as if they were alive. You must be suffering. The spider has you in its clutches. At this time, she opened her eyes slightly in a dull stare. Her gaze steadily brightened as the moon brightens in the evening until it shone dazzlingly into his face. Let me see the tattoo, she said, speaking as if in a dream but with an edge of authority to her voice. Giving me your soul must have made me very beautiful. First, you must bathe to bring out the colours, whispered Sakichi compassionately. I'm afraid it will hurt be brave a little longer. I can bear anything for the sake of beauty. Despite the pain that was coursing through her body, she smiled. How the water stings! Leave me alone! Wait in the other room. I hate to have a man see me suffer like this. She left the tub too weak to dry herself. The girl pushed aside the sympathetic hand Seikichi offered her and sank to the floor in agony, moaning as if in a nightmare. Her dishevelled hair hung over her face in a wild tangle. The white soles of her feet were reflected in the mirror behind her. Sekichi was amazed at the change that had come over the timid, yielding girl of yesterday, but he did as he was told and went to wait in his studio. About an hour later she came back, carefully dressed, her damp sleekly combed hair hanging down over her shoulders. Leaning on the veranda rail, she looked up into the faintly hazy sky. Her eyes were brilliant. There was not a trace of pain in them. I wish to give you these pictures too, said Sakichi, placing the scrolls before her. Take them and go. All my old fears have been swept away. And you my first victim. She darted a glance at him as bright as a sword. A song of triumph was ringing in her ears. Let me see your tattoo once more, Sakichi begged. Silently, the girl nodded and slipped the kimono off her shoulders. Just then, her resplendently tattooed back caught a ray of sunlight and the spider was wreathed in flames. Hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon. For little as five quid a month, you can help make this show possible, help us buy research materials. So if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month and you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche, deep topics you don't want to miss out on. 
And honestly, the chance to kind of decide what Thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Subscribe, chuck us a few quid. Don't miss out on the chance to ruin Thomas's body forever. Everyone knows that tattoo aftercare is one of the most important steps in getting a new tattoo. We all want our fresh new tattoos to heal as easily and hassle-free as possible so we can show them off to the world. That's why Saniderm's here to help. Driven by science and innovation, Saniderm products have been thoroughly tested and used by doctors and tattoo artists alike for over 10 years. Saniderm brings cutting-edge technology to make your tattoo healing process a breeze. No more messing around with cleaning and plastic every few hours with Saniderm's amazing range of aftercare products. I personally have used Saniderm to heal my tattoos in the past, and they made what used to be a daily process of setting reminders on my phone to clean and rewrap my tattoo into a one-step process. Their medical-grade products include aftercare balms, soaps, and my favourite, their second skin aftercare bandages. Saniderm's tattoo bandages are designed to be waterproof, breathable, and keep your new tattoo protected from whatever the elements can throw at it so you can get on with your day worry-free and confident your new tattoo will look vibrant and will heal faster. Plus, their products are all natural and ethically sourced, so you can take comfort in knowing that you're healing your tattoos with nature's finest ingredients. So next time you're in an artist's chair, why not try Saniderm, healing your tattoos the modern way so you can get on with your day. Check out the link in the description of this episode for discounts on a range of Saniderm products or for more information. Oh damn, that was really good. <laughs> it, it, it it's funny, like that that, sto that story was incredible, but it when I was listening to it, it made me think about you know a lot of kind of the I suppose philosophical reasoning behind a lot of people's fear of tattoos and you know the outside of like the kind of Christian idea or religious idea of the desecration of the body that it is fundamentally changing the body into something else that that was that was incredible i i i was just kind of lost listening to it yeah it's it's so much in there i mean about obviously like gender relations about sex about yeah like femininity cultural uh you know cultural um expectations of gender this relationship between art and body art and yeah as you said the transformational quality of tattooing the other thing of course is as we were talking about in relation to a tiktok uh video this week tattooing under anesthetic <laughs> don't do it yeah yeah the much less story the next story is much less spooky than the one i just read out um it's much more of a kind of like tattoo kind of mystery i suppose but i, I read it out because it sets up something um it's basically a kind of prelude to the, the third story that I want to read you, which is a kind of spin on it. Um, and I can't read that one out in full, as I said, for copyright reasons. So I'll read this one out and then I will um, summarize the, 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 the other story that I want to draw upon. So this is, this story is also from, um, uh, from uh, the Edwardian period. Um, um, I, around about, let me just check. Uh, I think it's uh, 19, uh, 1909 or something. Let's have a look. Uh, let me get this right. 1911. So just around the same time as um, as that other story I read to you. This is an English story. The author is a guy called Saki. Uh, that, that was his pen name. Um, Hector Hugo Monroe, uh, a gay 
kind of macabre, or if um, we take the Ink Master presentation, macabre story writer, um, uh, uh, who, who wrote a lot of kind of short stories. This is much shorter than the one I just read you. And this is um, a, a story called The Background. Um, and it features kind of his Poirot-like character, a, a kind of detective character called Clovis. I am a detective Clovis. I am here to solve the Clovis. mystery. <laughs> Actually, some some of it is actually set in Luxembourg, so but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do my Clouseau accent. You can imagine that. <laughs> okay, Saki, the background. That woman's art jargon tires me," said Clovis to his journalist friend. She's so fond of talking of certain pictures as growing on one, as if they were a sort of fungus. That reminds me," the journalist said, "of the story of Henri de Plisse." Have I ever told you? Clovis shook his head. Henri de Plisse was by birth a native of the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg. On mature reflection, he became a commercial traveller. His business activities frequently took him beyond the limits of the Grand Duchy, and as he was stopping in a small town of northern Italy, news reached him from home that a legacy from a distant and deceased relative had fallen to his share. It was not a large legacy, even from the modest standpoint of Henri de Plis, but it impelled him towards some seemingly harmless extravagances. In particular, it led him to patronise local art, as represented by the tattoo needles of Signor Andreas Pincini. Signor Pincini was, perhaps, the most brilliant master of tattoo craft that Italy had ever known, but his circumstances were decidedly impoverished and for the sum of 600 francs, he gladly undertook to cover his client's back from the collarbone down to the waistline with a glowing representation of the fall of Icarus. The design, when fully developed, was a slight disappointment to Monsieur Desplis, who'd suspected Icarus of being a fortress taken by Wallenstein in the Thirty Years' War. But he was more than satisfied with the execution of the work, which was acclaimed by all who had the privilege of seeing it as Pancini's masterpiece. It was his greatest effort and his last. Without even wanting to be paid, the illustrious craftsman departed this life and was buried under an ornate tombstone whose winged cherubs would have afforded singularly little scope for the exercise of his favourite art. There remained, however, the widow Pincini, to whom the 600 francs were due, and thereupon arose the great crisis in the life of Henri Duplis, traveller of commerce, a legacy under the stress of numerous little calls on its substance, had dwindled to very insignificant proportions, and when pressing a wine bill and sundry other current accounts had been paid, there remained little more than 430 francs to offer the widow. The lady was properly indignant, and not wholly as she volubly explained on account of the suggested writing off of 170 francs, but also at the attempt to depreciate the value of her late husband's acknowledged masterpiece. In a week's time, Deplis was obliged to re reduce his offer to 405 francs, which circumstance famed the widow's indignation to a fury. She cancelled the sale of the work of art, and a few days later, Deplis learned with a sense of consternation she had presented it to the municipality of Bergamo, which had gratefully accepted it. He left the neighbourhood as, as unobtrusively as possible and was genuinely relieved when his business commands took him to Rome, where he hoped his identity and that of the famous picture might be lost sight of. 
But he bore on his back the burden of the dead man's genius. On presenting himself one day in the steaming corridor of a vapour bath, he was once hustled back into his clothes by the proprietor, who was North Italian, and who emphatically refused to allow the celebrated fall of Icarus to be publicly on view without permission of the municipality of Bergamo. Public interest and official vigilance increased as the matter became more widely known, and the police was unable to take a simple dip in the sea or river on the hottest afternoon unless clothed up to the collarbone in a substantial bathing garment. Later on, the authorities of Bergamo conceived the idea that salt water might be injurious to the masterpiece, and a perpetual injunction was obtained which debarred the muchly harassed commercial traveller from sea bathing under any circumstances. Altogether, he was fervently thankful when his firm of employers found him a new range of activities in the neighbourhood of Bordeaux. His thankfulness, however, ceased abruptly at the Franco-Italian frontier. An opposing array of official force barred his departure, and he was sternly reminded of the stringent law which forbids the exportation of Italian works of art. A diplomatic parley ensued beneath the Luxembourgian and Italian governments and at one time the European situation became overcast with the possibilities of trouble. But the Italian government stu stood firm. It declined to concern itself in, in, in the least with the fortunes or even the existence of Henri Duplis, commercial traveller. But it was immovable in its decision that the fall of Icarus by the late Pincini Andreas, at present the pr pr a property of the municipality of Bergamo, should not leave the country. <laughs> The excitement died down in time, but the unfortunate Duplis, who was of a constitutionally retiring disposition, found himself a few months later once more the storm centre of a furious controversy. A certain German art expert who had obtained from the municipality of Bergamo permission to inspect the famous masterpiece declared it to be a spurious Pincini, but probably the work of some pupil who he'd employed in his declining years. The evidence of Duplis on the subject was obviously worthless, as he'd been, he'd been under the influence of the customary narcotics during the long process of pricking in the design. The editor of an Italian art journal refuted the contentions of the German expert and undertook to prove his private life did not conform to any modern standard of decency. The whole of Italy and Germany were drawn into the dispute, and the rest of Europe was soon involved in the quarrel. There were stormy scenes in the Spanish Parliament and the University of Copenhagen bestowed a gold medal on the German art expert, afterwards sending commission to examine his proofs on the spot, whilst two Polish schoolboys in Paris committed suicide to show what they thought of the matter. Meanwhile, the unhappy human background fared no better than before, and it was not surprising he drifted into the ranks of Italian anarchists. Four times at least he was escorted to the frontier as a dangerous and undesirable foreigner, but he was always brought back as the fall of Icarus, attributed to Pincini Andreas, early 20th century. And then one day at an anarchist congress in Genoa, a fellow worker in the heat of debate broke a file full of corrosive liquid over his back. The red shirt he was wearing mitigated the effects, but the Icarus was ruined beyond recognition. His assailant was severely reprimanded for assaulting a fellow anarchist and received seven years imprisonment for defacing a national art treasure. As soon as he was able to leave the hospital, Henry de Plis was put across the frontier as an undesirable alien. In the quietest streets of Paris, especially in the neighbourhood of the Ministry of Fine Arts, you may sometimes meet a depressed, anxious-looking man who, if you pass him the time of day, will answer you with a slight Luxembourgian accent. He nurses the illusion he's one of the lost arms of Venus de Milo and hopes that the French government may be persuaded to buy him 
on all other subjects, I believe he is tolerably sane. So yeah, Tom, no, um, not exactly a horror, not a, not a ghost story, but a horror story nonetheless, given that it involves um, several years trapped at the Luxembourg Italian border, <laughs> which sounds like a nightmare to me. It uh, it highlights the uh, the Kafka esque nightmare that is copyright law. You know, as horrible as it might be to be stuck at the um, uh, Italian border and to have acid thrown on over you by Italian anarchists. Um, the third story I, I need to summarise for you because, um, as I said, it's still in copyright. is is the story "Skin" by Roald Dahl. Um, you know, master of uh, uh, of creepy stories. Um, wasn't Roald Dahl a massive uh, anti-Semite? Oh yeah, he's a total arsehole. Uh, you know, um, retweets do not imply endorsement. Um, yeah, Roald Dahl, not a nice man. Uh, you know, but 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 a, a good writer, uh, nevertheless. Um, problematic fave. Um, so the story of Skin by Roald Dahl is basically that story. Um, it's set not in Italy. Uh, or Luxembourg, uh, but in France. So yeah, so the story is um, uh, this guy who's called Diroli. He goes to get uh, tattooed, not by a tattoo artist, but by a by a painter. A painter who, in the story, is said to be Chime Soutine, who's like a real French uh, 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 fr- French painter. And he paints. Uh, he tattoos on this on the back uh, this 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 tattoo. And then many years later, this story goes, this this guy is like, you know, walking through the snow, impoverished, poor, and he comes across uh, this kind of light uh, in the distance and he, he goes up to this shop front and he looks through the window and it's all these people gaily kind of, you know, clinking wine glasses and he realises it's, it's an art opening or an art exhibition and he realises it's an exhibition of works by Chime Soutine, the man who's tattoo he wears on his back and so he goes in and he tells these uh collect these wealthy collectors that he's the rightful owner of you know of a, of a lost rare time soutine picture and they say no no um and he takes his shirt off and all of a sudden they start a bidding war basically to try and buy the tattoo from him um and I will read you just the last section of this uh, because it, it, it is the punchline of, uh, of a very much longer story and I hope that will work uh, ironically enough for copyright purposes um, okay so so there's this uh, so they've all made bids and eventually he agrees to sell the tattoo right so Obviously, that's going to be difficult because he doesn't know, you know, how are we going to do that? And and the um, the uh, established crowd say, uh, or the guy that the guy that agrees to buy his tattoo says, um, "I am the owner of the Hotel Bristol in Cannes. I invite you to come down here and live as my guest for the rest of your life in luxury and comfort." The man paused, allowing his listener time to savour this cheerful prospect. Your only duty, shall I call it your pleasure, will be to spend your time on my beach in bathing trunks, walking among my guests, sunning yourself, swimming, drinking cocktails. You'd like that? There was no answer. 
Don't you see? All the guests will thus be able to observe this fascinating picture by Soutine. You'll become famous, and men will say, Look, there's the fellow with 10 million francs on his back. You like this idea, monsieur? It pleases you? And then um, they basically discuss uh, potentially um, removing the tattoo, you know. Uh, so one of the man, the, the, the guy who owns the hotel can in Bristol, basically his rival comes in and says, I'll pay a surgeon to remove the skin from your back and um, put some new skin back in its place. And, and yeah, um, the man, Diroli, says, would it kill me? He says, yeah, naturally, it would never survive. Only the picture would come. Um, and then, so, of course, he agrees to go with the man who's going to let him live at the Hotel Bristol in Cannes. And then here's the last paragraph of the story. It wasn't more than a few weeks later that a picture by Soutine of a woman's head, painted in an unusual manner, nicely framed and heavily varnished, turned up for sale in Buenos Aires. That, and the fact there is no hotel in Cannes called Bristol, causes one to wonder a little, and to pray for the old man's health, and to hope fervently that whatever he may be at this moment, there's a plump, attractive girl to manicure the nails of his fingers, and a maid to bring his breakfast to him in bed in the mornings. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> I love that phrase, nicely framed and heavily varnished. Um... Uh, again, uh, we will do an episode on tattooed preserved skins in future. I think, yeah, so clearly like Dahl's taken that, um, the, the, the logic of that Saki story that, you know, a tattoo is a work of art and you perhaps you can put an export license on it or, or, or what or whatever, an export ban, and, and taken that to its more horrifying and creepy conclusion. <laughs> well, like, I was it, did Roald Dahl fight in World War One or Two? I think I'm not sure. I think probably World War Two would be my guess, but I'm going to Google it because he died in the, he died in 1990, mm-hmm. so he would have been too yeah he would have been too old yeah Second World War. Fine yeah, because like it, it, it makes sense. Obviously, aside from his uh his personal opinions that like soldiers on the front line would have been you know in would have heard of you know rumors of fines towards the end of the war of like lamps made of skin and the horrors that particularly the Waffen SS committed against the bodies of, you know, captured people. Matt's eating a bun right yeah, now. Yeah, you're right. We, no, we, I'm, we I'm eating a Pringles. To eat his bun. Oh, you're eating what, what flavor? I'm eating Pringles. Um, salt and vinegar. Favorite the only choice. Um, yeah, like... You're right, and, and and those stories would have been uppermost in his mind as well. The stories that came out of the Ilse Koch trial about preserved like lampshades made of human skin. Um, no evidence that Koch was actually involved in those manufacture of those things. Uh, they were made, um, but she was they were removed from her charge sheet actually because there was no evidence she was personally involved. Um, but yeah, you know, d- deeply, deeply horrible, uh, and and certainly again the un- the underlying kind of true horror. Um, real horror underlying where where Dahl has has got that story from. Um, there's a contemporary artist, a guy called Vim Delvoir, Belgian artist, who sort of did a piece uh, based on this, which is called Tim. Um, he actually originally p- participated in a show which was actually called Chime Soutine um, by a gallery in Hackney back in 2004, where they they got 
you know, famous artists or, or lesser famous artists in many cases, people like David Shrigley and Soutine himself and Sarah Lucas to design tattoos for people. Um, and based on that idea, basically, Vim Delvoir then produced this work called Tim, which the whole function of which was to to sell. So so Tim, who's uh, uh, who's a big who's a guy with a back piece, basically was sold to a gallery, a German collector, um, for I think about seventy thousand euros, and it was split half and half between Soutine and Tim himself. And in return, Tim on some periodic basis has to go and stand in his pants next to a label in a museum. Um, so yeah, so so that became a kind of real story, um, so to speak. And my last, okay, my last one of these, and this is this is truly horrifying because it comes not from the pages of fiction. Um, well, rip from straight the from the headlines. Well, rip straight from like one of my favourite tattoo books, which is quite underrated. Um, it, it came out uh, back in, I think, 2009 by a tattooer from Seattle called Jeff Johnson. Uh, the original machine was called, the original book was called Tattoo Machine. Um, Tall Tales, True Stories and My Life in Ink. And then it was re-released on a bigger publisher um, as Tattoo Tales. And it's a series of basically like nicely told story stories from his his time as a tattoo artist and there's some incredible anecdotes in this book and I it's one of my one of my favorite books of this genre because it's so well written and such an interesting peek into this particular life but there is a chapter chapter eight in that book which is called the killers and again given the copyright here I can't read it out to you um but I want to just read an extract so basically um uh Johnson says it was just after 1am almost closing time the door was propped open on a warm night and I was zoned out partially hypnotised by fatigue and the buzz of the neon the four lane one way street out front was empty in the distance I heard the roar of a big engine getting closer when a car screeched to a halt out front I stood up and looked out wide awake I didn't like what I saw one bit and then he describes um, basically that this gang come in, uh, like, you know, American kind of gangsters. He says, cliche from a rap video, basically, this incredible kind of like gang. They've all got guns. They're all like kind of, um, you know, uh, clearly kind of hyped up and, 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 and ready to kind of, you know, ready to fucking go. And the leader is the smallest guy in the group, and he says he wants his girlfriend's name on his chest, big as you can make it. Uh, so Johnson describes like uh, drawing it on, outlining it, and then the guy's phone rings, and the the phone rings, and and the guy answers it, his mobile phone, while Johnson's doing this shaliqua on his chest, and um, basically, yeah. We're at that tattoo place. He's getting Shaniqua's name. That little shit in there? Not too long. When you hear the car, go out the back door because we're killing every motherfucker in the whole place. So then, Johnson basically realises that he flinched when he heard that and he fucks the tattoo up. <laughs> so, the guy um, basically uh, is there with a shitty tattoo on his chest and Johnson's like I didn't know what to do so I said to him don't look down we're almost done you'll warp the transfer 
And then he said, quote, for the next hour, I prayed to God I don't believe in as I turned the name into a kind of LA graffiti piece so complicated you could only make out half the letters. And then he talks and then he talks about um, then he talks about going uh, like going uh, home that night, turning on the television and seeing news of a gangland killing (laughs) for agreeing it out. So that's one. But the creepiest one of uh, uh, the creepiest story in the same chapter is, is the one that I really wanted to focus on. Um, and again, I'll just quote quickly from the introductory chapter and then summarize, or introductory sentence and summarize the rest of it. This type of encounter occurs, in general, about once a year, sometimes more, but none of them hold a candle to the human I've come to call a collector. So it's the early 90s, uh, or sorry, the late 90s, um, summer's day, he's pretty chill, this guy comes in, um, this kind of weird, thin man, a tall, thin man with a pigeon chest, dragging his fingernails over an image on the wall in small, caressing circles. This real creepy guy. Um, he's got this weird voice, and um, he's running his nails right over the flashboard. Um, he points to this banner like a, sh- a, a banner with three slots and says like how much uh, Johnson quotes him like too much he says he quoted him 100 bucks ridiculously high for something so basic because he didn't want to do it he was enjoying his summer's day he nodded and withdrew his hand and then um, he realises like this guy is like he's going to get this tattoo done so he's there he's like silent creepy yeah the guy says I want it on my chest so he pulls out the release form. The guy uh, um, takes the release form, makes the stencil. He starts tattering this guy on the chest, and the guy says, "Yeah, I want it on my on my chest, but I'm really shy of my body. I don't want to open my shirt all the way because I'm awkward." Um, Johnson says, "This weird dude lay down on the bodyboard, then shimmied out of his shirt like a molting snake." Um. So he tattooed the banner really quickly, just five minute job. And, and then he says, oh, look, we didn't talk about it when I did the stencil, but do you want anything in the banner? No charge. And the guy says, yeah. And I'll, I'll quote from Johnson here because it's so creepily written. Yes, he said in his high voice and told me a woman's name. I've racked my brain over and over trying to remember it. I dutifully tattooed it and then asked him about the two remaining slots. He gave me a date, sometime a little over a week before. I thought at this point maybe he had a girlfriend. In the last one I want numbers, he said softly. Nine of them. So then Johnson's in the middle of tattooing these numbers and then he realises basically halfway through doing them that this is obviously a social security number. (laughs) Right? And uh, again, Johnson, somehow I could... I could tell he knew what I was thinking. I'd been waiting for this moment. Everything changed in one violent lurch. It was like looking into the eyes of an alligator. Um, I was not in control of this situation at all. I never had been. He was. On some deep primate level, it dawned on me this guy was pure evil. So he jumps up out of the chair. Um, his shirt like billows open. And his entire back is covered in banners with names, dates and social security numbers on. Right, um, 
and again quoting Johnson the insane haphazard stigger aspect was appalling in itself as though the tattoos had been thrown randomly on his back from across the room for some reason one of them stands out a faded black horse head with a three strip banner crowned with letters and numbers riding high in the collection every single one of them a woman's name a date and a social security number (laughs) so then the guy like legs it out of the shop (laughs) uh, and he's gone right doesn't pay uh, takes his hundred bucks disappears into the uh, early evening and like Johnson's like what the fuck am I going to do he grabs the release form thinking this is going to have the guy's name on it but he realises he's never filled it in and that's it right that's it the guy's gone um, and then this is the, the, the beautiful end of this chapter um, uh, over the years I've developed a disturbing pattern resulting from my encounter with the collector once a year I sit down at the computer and look over websites devoted to serial killers to see if this guy has ever been caught I do it on the day before my birthday. He's still out there. Today I've found no evidence the collector's been apprehended, but I'm watching and so are other tattoo artists. <laughs> so that was like, that was back in the 90s. Uh, um, I don't know if this guy ever was ever caught or what the truth of this story was, but like, how fucking crazy is that? That is insane. Like, if that's true, that is insane. <laughs> Isn't that fucking dark, eh? Like, yeah, that because like yeah. when you st- when you started, it, I was just kind of like, is this guy going to be someone that has a recognizable name? That because it, my first thought went to serial killer, but like that is mad. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the two stories in that chapter, the the the, the gang tattoo. Have just stuck with me, you know. They're one of those things that when you read it, it will stick with you forever. So, um, I thought that was a nice way to end off our Halloween episode, and maybe, um, maybe, uh, listeners can figure out if this guy ever was apprehended or not. Yep. Uh, if anyone is interested in true crime that listens to it, I'm sure, uh, you, you will know. But, uh, yeah, on, on that weird note, um, I want to thank you very much for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed listening to this show, uh, this episode, as much as I enjoyed listening to Matt telling those stories. This is this episode's featured very little me. But uh, 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 uh. yeah, um, if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more, you want to hear episodes like this early, and you want to hear our bonus episodes. Plus, uh, we are coming up with some cool new stuff for the different tiers. And if you want a signed copy of Matt's book, you can check out our Patreon. You get the book out, out of 15 this week, pa- out this week, out this week, out this week, out this week. If you sign up at the 15 pound tier, you'll get Matt's book and you can sign up for as little as five pounds a month. So with that in mind, thank you very much for listening. I have been one of your hosts, Tom. I have been a uh, very little in this episode, but uh, if you want to find me online, you can do it. at got it at Guyanese. That's G U Y N E. Y-S, and you can find Matt everywhere at Matt Lauder. That's correct. Uh, up in the belfry, down in the well. And uh, from both of us, have a spooky, spooky Halloween. Bye. Bye. <laughs>